Welcome to Landmark Worship Center's audio podcast. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage your life. So open your heart and mind and receive what God has for you today. And I want to share some things with you over the next, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks. I'm not sure. You know how that goes with me. I never know. Uh, I started out with the book of Genesis. And I thought, well, you know, maybe four or five weeks and I'll be done with that. And seven years later, I'm still not done with it. So I don't know where this is going to go, but wherever it goes, it's, it's whatever it is for God. Um. But my title today for uh, what we're going to be studying is The One and Only Cure-All. The One and Only Cure-All. You know, years ago there were traveling salesmen that would go from town to town and they'd be selling all kinds of goods. They'd have pots and pans and they'd have all kinds of tools and they would have all kinds of things. These were peddlers and they'd go around through towns and, and they would all have these whatever specific things that they had to bring uh, to people. Uh, it's not like today. Uh, today, we've got stores, you know, on every corner. We've got, everything's just so convenient. In that day, that wasn't the case. Uh, you didn't have town to go to most of the time. The town had to come to you. So these peddlers would bring all their wares, and they would set up in a, as close as they could to a town, and if they couldn't, they'd just go to individuals. But they always had one thing in common, and that was they always sold these tonics that were cure-alls. Everybody had his own specific brand of tonic that he wanted to sell. And these tonics were miraculous. These tonics could cure everything. It didn't matter what you had, it could cure it. It could cure headaches. It could cure fevers. It could cure gout. I mean, it could cure baldness. Rub some of that on your head. It could cure literally anything and whatever you would say. Well, well, does it cure? Yes, it cures that too. There was nothing that it couldn't take care of. They considered it a cure-all for everything. And they sold some bottles of that. And when people got the bottles, they found out they were told a lie, that it didn't really cure all. And most of those tonics were, uh, the major ingredient in most of those tonics was alcohol. And it might have made you feel pretty good, give you a little buzz, but other than that, once that buzz wore off, you were right back where you started from. It didn't do anything for you. The same thing may even be said about many of the drugs that have been developed uh, to combat some physical sickness or some physical diseases today. They, they do these to try to uh, cure various diseases and sicknesses. And they don't always accomplish that. And what generally winds up happening is, instead of being the cure-all for that particular sickness or disease, it just targets the symptoms. 
Because you can live with a disease if you can handle the symptoms. So they're not so concerned about delivering us from the disease as they are to controlling the symptoms. Number one, if they don't cure the disease, you're going to keep coming back to get their drugs so that you can take care of the symptoms so that you can deal with it, at least live. Sad to say, but that's the truth. There are very few drugs that have been produced that are actually able to cure the diseases and the sicknesses. Now, they will tell us that they can cure things, and they might cure things once in a while, but the results are that most of the time they don't actually cure the problem. They just make it so that we can live with them. That's not what we want, but that's what we are forced into expecting. And what experiences such as these can begin to form within us is what we know as skepticism. Anybody here ever become skeptical of something? Skeptics and skepticism is the unwillingness to accept what is being offered as something that is true. Do you have problems believing sometimes some of the things that people tell us? How about politicians? <laughs> I'm pretty skeptical about politicians. Uh, there was, there's an old joke that talks about politicians that said, do you know how to tell when a politician's lying? His lips are moving. We can grow skeptical over a lot of things in life because we become disappointed and disillusioned when they, when they tell us that what we're about to receive from them is going to cure something, is going to take care of something, is going to provide us with a, a remedy for whatever it is that they're promising, only to find out that they fed us a line, that it wasn't true. And the next time somebody comes in, it makes us a little more skeptical, a little more unwilling to just believe them on face value for what they say. Some of the things that we're going to be talking about today are going to be things that have also added more fuel to the fire of our becoming skeptical in life. And the tragedy is that skepticism can come over into religion. The skepticism can also be attached to us trying to have a relationship with God. Life can make us skeptical and it, causes, it creates problems for us when we try to connect with God. But before we begin to, to check these other things out, I, I want to tell you right up front that my main focus in this study is going to be dealing with the one true great elixir, so to speak, that actually can cure all. Because there is a cure-all for our world. There is a cure-all for our world. This cure-all can take on and it can eradicate all of those really tough problems and those situations that are wreaking havoc on our lives and our world today. It can deal with all the problems that we face. It is a solution. Anybody here besides me believe that our world is sick? That there is some major problems in our world today? That there are troubles aplenty going on around our world? 
All you need to do is turn on the news, look at a newspaper, flip on your phone because you can get all kinds of news there. Whether you want the news or not, you can get it on your phone. There's always the pop-ups that tell you something. Whether you're interested in it or not, it's going to tell you. So it's on there. But most of the time, that news is not good stuff. That news is about problems. It's about circumstances that are, are, are just wreaking havoc in certain areas. And it isn't just our country that's experiencing disturbing problems. This is a worldwide crisis. This is ongoing around the world. We don't have the market cornered on crisis in America. How many times have we heard about some international terrorist group that have secret identities and they planted these sleeper cells around the world in different places and these sleeper cells are just waiting for one day for them to be contacted so that they can be set into order to create havoc within a society, to target innocent people in order to get their demands met. How can we be expected to defend ourselves from the evils that these fanatics are ready and willing to execute upon any and all who do not agree with their views of God and government? Do we have a solution for that? Well, we haven't had so far. We're talking about people who are ready to sacrifice their lives for the sake of the cause that they have given their lives to. That's a hard sell. You get somebody that believes something that strongly, and it's hard to stop them. It's hard to stop them. That's just one of the problems that we face. What about the fact that we're creating more and more newcomers who are joining this elite nuclear arms race membership? It started out as a race in the, uh, in the beginning as the United States against, the, against Germany and trying to develop this ability of creating a weapon of mass destruction using the splitting of atoms and releasing all of this destructive power. But then right on the heels of that situation, Russia, whose interest brought them onto the world stage of nuclear-powered weaponry, also began to join this club, this membership. And thus it remained for a long time. However, that lust for that kind of power began to motivate a number of other nations to join themselves to that same club so that today we've added to that list the nations of China, India, Pakistan, Israel, Korea, France, the United Kingdom, and who knows who else is going to be joining that in the next few years. We don't know. They don't know. For me, the scary thing about this proliferation of power-hungry people is that the more nations that have access to these incredibly destructive weapons, the greater the likelihood is that sometime, and it may be sooner rather than later, they're going to be settling some dispute which is sure to arise by using this means. And when that happens, nobody's going to be safe. we got problems, folks. we got troubles in our world. Then we have that age-old specter of genocide, and that refuses to go away. The hatred of one race of people against another, and it's been around since the early history of mankind. You don't have to go back very far. 
All throughout history, there have been instances of the attempted extermination of entire races of people by the hands of others who, for whatever reason, had grown to hate them and sought their complete removal from the face of the earth. History books are full of that. We aren't talking about backward, uncivilized people attacking one another. Most of the time, it involved the supposedly highly advanced societies which decided that these other less advanced societies were causing them problems for their advancement, so they needed to be taken out of the way. So they just focused all that rage and hatred on this one group of people that were standing in their way. we got to get rid of them. The British in Australia sought to wipe out the aborigines who had inhabited that land before they had arrived to claim it. The Spanish in both Mexico and Peru had decimated the indigenous populations of those countries after claiming them their, what had belonged to them for their own country. Unless we forget, those who came from Europe to begin living here in America drove out the native populations and began an ethnic purge to rid the land from the scourge of the heathen. And even in our more modern times, we've been witnesses to the ugliness of that same hatred, that same animosity, that same mindset. Hitler's Germany had sought to exterminate the Jewish people, the gypsies, and those who were the Slavic races. In Bosnia-Herzegovina, not that long ago, there was a violent racial warfare that erupted between the Serbians and the Croatians, and that turned into a match that was bent on extermination. In Iraq, we saw Saddam Hussein's regime wage a chemical war against the bands of nomads called the Kurds. They had roamed that nation's boundaries for years, but his purpose was their annihilation. He wanted them out of the way. In the African country of Rwanda, it became a life-and-death struggle between the Tutsis and the Hutus, which resulted in hundreds of thousands being slaughtered. Perhaps some of you can remember hearing the name Khmer Rouge. This political group was responsible for the mass killings of somewhere between one and a half to three million Cambodians in a war of genocide that happened during the late 70s. Hatred. Hatred. One group of people hating another. That hasn't gone away. It needs to go away, but it hasn't gone away. Those are just a few. There have been many others, folks. And there's probably going to be others to come. Another troubling situation that threatens our world today is one that deals with the economic makeup of our world. The conditions that exist now are making it not only possible, but at some point likely that we uh, are looming under a shadow of economic collapse on a global scale. The economic clout that was enjoyed by our nation for so many years over the past few years has begun a steady decline. Our place of economic power is being replaced by that new economic powerhouse of China. And we've also witnessed the coming together of a confederation of several European nations in an economic unity to form a more powerful economic presence amidst this global market. And that combination is known as the European common market. But they've been having their problems too. There's been some people wanting to get out of that. We've also watched the nations of India and Pakistan begin their rise in pushing their economies into a place 
of competition with the other major players on the world stage. And we cannot forget to include the rise of the economic powerhouse of, of the Indonesian region, which has also steadily encroached upon the turf that once belonged to some of these other powerhouses of economic uh, wealth. But what perhaps has not been of great concern to all of those who hold the lion's share of the global market is that all it would take to topple the whole house of cards would be for a collapse to happen in just a very few of these major players on the world stage. What happens when one or two or three of these start having economic crises? Because these we're all interconnected, folks. Our world's all interconnected, especially economically. And it's not just one. We're all connected to somebody else who's connected to somebody else who's connected to somebody else. And when one starts falling, it's a domino effect. And that could happen. That could happen. There's always the specter of famine hanging around somewhere in the world. And there, there it should never happen here in America, but there are, can, there are situations here in America where people are starving to death. How can that be possible? In a land of plenty, how can people be starving to death? Shouldn't be. The continent of Africa seems to have become that center stage for producing and enabling a continuing struggle with the very problem of famine. There are famines that are, are the result of natural disasters, of course, either, either drought or it can be the opposite side of the coin. that can be uh, flooding or it can be pests, insects. But there's also famines that are created by the greed and inhumanity of those who occupy some place of power or prominence in leadership. And we see that happen all the time. I remember reading an account uh, that was written by a journalist who had gone to Somalia to cover uh, the events that were going, ongoing at that time. It was during a period of civil war that they were involved in, which they had been in several times. But this particular period of time, this uh, journalist had gone over to uh, try to assess the situation. And, and he was witnessing many, many, many people being slaughtered. And so uh, during this time of slaughter, the United Nations had stepped in, and the United Nations had, had sent troops in to try to bring about some semblance of order back into, uh, into the nation to try to curb some of the chaos that was going on. And a great number of people were actually dying of starvation. And they discovered, uh, once the UN had sent in uh, several million tons of food by ship, they had shipped it in, they had docked at some of the harbors there. And what had happened was that one of the major warlords, after they had offloaded so much of these supplies that were going to be given to the, uh, to the Somalians to help them with their uh, famine situation, people starving, um, this warlord only allowed so much of this, and then he shut it down. He told them, you're not, you're not going to unload any more of this stuff. He took what he needed for his troops, left the rest of it on the docks. Millions of tons of food rotted in the holds of ships and on the docks. People starving and dying on purpose because this warlord was trying to starve the people into submission to joining his cause. What a great guy. Wouldn't you want him for your leader? 
we got a sick world, folks. We have got a sick world. It needs healing big time. It needs changing. Another problem that seems to be in constant supply around the world is that of civil unrest. People becoming fed up with leadership that only manages to push them down ever farther and make their lives grow continually more and more difficult. The monarchy of Russia found itself embroiled in a civil uprising at the turn of the 20th century, and that resulted in the rise to power of a communist form of government. That same communist government that had begun to expand its empire uh, to include a large part of Europe became party uh, to uh, became prey to the expanding power of dissident voices within its own ranks. And so powerful was the outcry that in the 1980s they succeeded in breaking apart what had been the Soviet Union and caused the collapse of that system of government there. We've also witnessed the civil uprisings which occurred against the leadership and government of Iran also during the 1980s. The ousting of the Shah of Iran and then the installing of Ayatollah Khomeini, which we find out later on they had just gone from the frying pan into the fire with that guy because he was a, an Islamic radical and he transformed everything. He sent them back to the Stone Age, basically. The youth of China rose up in civil unrest against the oppressive rule of its government in a place called Tiananmen Square. One of the most amazing confrontations was filmed and aired worldwide, and it was the, the showing of a, of a young college student who dared to stand in front of a tank that was moving into Tiananmen Square to, to subdue these, the protest that was going on. This young man walked out from the crowd, stood in front of this huge tank, and refused to move. I mean, they didn't know what to do. So they decided, well, we'll just go one way. So they tried to go one way, the kid moved over that way. Whatever way they tried to move, he moved. He was not going to let that tank pass. That image that was broadcast around the world created so much pressure on China that they had to cave in. Protesting does have its power at times. But these incidents, these are just a few of the things that have happened in my lifetime, but there have also been uprisings in South America, Central America, Africa, India, Indonesia, pretty much all over the world we've seen that. It's mounting evidence that people worldwide are becoming fed up with the failure of leadership to address and find solutions for the problems that continue to plague all of us. So we've mentioned some of the troubling situations that have been and continue to be experienced in our world today. What about the leadership? What are these movers and shakers of our world offering up to us as surefire means of solving all of these problems. The first thing that's been employed most of the time is throwing money at the problems. The belief is that if enough financial assistance is poured into the troubled area, somehow it's going to magically be resolved. You just keep pumping money into it, and it's, somehow it's going to fix itself. Brilliant. Brilliant. Perhaps their reasoning has been skewed by what Jesus described as the deceitfulness of riches in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. He's talking about the different types of soil and the seed that's sown 
and how that the cares of life will choke out that and the deceitfulness of riches working together will destroy what God tries to do in implanting his word in people's lives. Because wealth promises great things, but it can't deliver it. Wealth tries to tell us it will solve all of our problems when it can't solve anything. You know, and who among us wouldn't like to be rich? But I'm going to tell you right now, that won't solve your problems. You'll still have problems. There are problems that money cannot solve. And I don't care how much money you throw at it, it can't solve it. You know, people don't want to believe that, but I'm telling you, it is the truth. It won't solve your problems. It hasn't solved ours in our country. It hasn't solved our problems. The leaders of our country are constantly at work trying to fix all sorts of problems around the world by repeatedly turning to that surefire method of using money to do its magic. We can eradicate terrorism by getting some of the terrorists to turn on their leaders uh, by just offering them enough money, enough reward. If you turn them in, well, we'll give you millions of dollars. Well, you turn them in. You put bounties on their heads. We can put pressure on the countries to provide safe havens for terrorists to uh, work, that work out of and, and tell them, well, we'll unfreeze your assets if, uh, if you'll just turn them over to us or just extradite them out of the country. We bribe people to do what we want them to do by throwing ungodly amounts of money at them. We believe that we can negotiate with warlords and other thugs by using enough money to appease them. And if that doesn't do the trick, then we prop up some opposition faction by giving them the money and the material to fight against the warlord that we don't like. America has used its resources to topple governments that we don't like or that won't go along with what we want them to do for us. Then we install the leader whom we've chosen and bribed as the new CEO of the country. We just believe, or rather, our leaders believe that money can get anyone to do what they want them to do in any and every situation. It's just a matter of negotiating the right price. How has that worked out for us so far, folks? How many problems has that solved for us? You know what it's done? It's created more problems than it's solved. That's not the answer. Another popular opinion held by many leaders for the solving of the world's troubles is the use of education. They believe that education is the key that's going to magically unlock the door to the solving of the problems that keep third world nations from achieving greatness. For instance, in their thinking, if the people could become educated in the area of political science, that would provide the people with a proper base that they could move, uh, that could move them into a place of installing a government that would be able to help them solve the problems that are demanding results. Let me ask you this. How has our knowledge of the way that our government is supposed to work helped us as a nation to solve our problems? Has politics or politicians brought us any closer as a nation to the solution that's trying to sink us? What about educating them in the earth sciences? If we teach them ways to help them become better able to provide enough food to feed their own people, that would certainly solve a major problem in the world. Educate them on irrigation methods, on what plants are best suited to grow in various types of soils, etc. 
that project was shared with the country of Brazil, but instead of helping them, it created a monster that's now threatening to destroy the world's largest rainforest and ecosystem that could have a devastating impact upon the rest of the world. That hasn't helped. What if we could educate other third world countries on industrial manufacturing so that they could build their own infrastructure and maintain it? China and India both joined that process. China dumped so much industrial waste into the Yangtze's River that it's said to be the most polluted river in the world. It's the longest river in Eurasia, and it accounts for 55% of the pollutants that end up in the neighboring seas and oceans. The Ganges River in India shares the same fate as the Yangtze in, of China. Industrial waste, raw sewage, and runoff from areas of where pesticides are used make the river a danger to the health of millions of people who live in who live on or near the sacred river. Nine of the 25 most polluted cities in the world belong to India. Another great success. Another theory is that we need to eliminate the problem of overcrowding. And in order to do that, we've got to reduce the number of children being born while at the same time increasing the number of the elderly being assisted in passing over into the next life enter the concepts of abortion and euthanasia. Someone gets to decide who lives and who dies, someone other than God who made us. And I don't know if anybody here besides me is a little concerned about sinful, deluded human beings have the right to decide the fate of which baby lives or dies and when the elderly are deemed no longer viable to be kept around. I don't want that in the hands of men. I don't trust them. The arguments for these drastic measures include that this approach would help to eliminate the threat of wars since their belief is that most wars are caused by nations becoming overcrowded and therefore they feel the need to expand their borders. World War I, the Great War, it wasn't started over wanting more land. It was started by... A, a freak accident thing, an assassination, and it set the world on fire. It, it's not always about the land. World War II, that might have seemingly started as uh, the Germans wanting more Lebensraum, more living space, but that's really not the plan that Hitler had in mind. He wanted the whole world. He was after dominating the world. It wasn't just about the land. It was about the world. He wanted the power. This approach would also greatly reduce the spread of disease and famine, which they also believe to be the main results of overcrowding. What about when it was less populated? We had the Black Plague in 1346 and 1353, and there wasn't nearly as many people then as there is now. They weren't overcrowded. What about Spanish influenza that happened in 1918 to 1920? The world wasn't overcrowded then, but we still had disease. It's not the overcrowding that's the problem, if there is overcrowding. And in all honesty, the world is not overcrowded. In fact, there is an abundance of space available for the world's present population of 8 billion souls. Did you know that we could easily fit the population of the entire world within an area that's the size of the states of Alaska and Texas? 
and every person would have 32 and a half feet by 100 feet of living space. That's a pretty good lot for every person in the world. So if you moved them all to the states of Alaska and Texas, guess what it would leave you? The rest of the United States, all of Canada, Central America, South America, Africa, Australia, the British Isles, Europe, and Asia. Tell me how we're overcrowded. Doesn't sound like it to me. Sometimes we create crisis. But the point is, our world is in trouble. And there's no denying that point. Now, it would be great if, if we had some leaders who knew how to fix it. But the trouble with the plans that have been implemented is that they've all been based on flawed assumptions. They've made the determination that the troubles have resulted from physical, external areas of conflict. Therefore, the needed treatment in order to resolve the problems must be aimed at those physical problem areas, those physical trouble areas. But the problems in our world are not the result of external physical events. They're instead merely the manifestation of an inner crisis that afflicts all of mankind. That means that if we start out our assessment of the problems and we incorrectly conclude where the cause originates from, then our incorrect postulation is going to lead us to incorporate measures based upon a false assumption. And that's going to result in the failure to resolve the real issue every time. So what we're being led to believe is going to put us back on the road to recover is actually doomed to fail before it's ever implemented. We can throw all of our money at these problems hoping to fix them. But in the end, we'll be left paupers and the cycle is just going to continue to escalate. We can educate the whole world, leaving out the most important knowledge, which includes God, and we'll still experience wars and genocides and famines and civil unrest. There's still going to be disease and suffering. We can deal with overcrowding, but that won't eradicate the strife and the contention that continues to separate ourselves from one another. Or worse, to seek to annihilate one another. It hasn't started working for us yet, has it? We all know that changes have got to be made if we're to see a major positive shift in the direction that our world is heading. And I think that we all know that it's going to require a great deal of effort and a great deal of sacrifice on all of us. But we also know that what we've been trying thus far has not worked. What's it going to take in order to bring our world to a place of peace and tranquility? What's it going to have to bring? What's going to have to happen for that to take place? I remember vaguely a statement that was made by a member of the United Nations several years ago. And his statement went something like this. We are looking for someone who can lead us out of the mess that our world is in, be he man or be he devil. That sounds like somebody that's desperate. And our world today, folks, is desperate for somebody to lead us out of this mess. I want to tell you right up front, there's not a man alive that can do that today. 
there is no man that's going to lead us out of this mess. The devil doesn't going to, he's not going to lead us out of the mess. He's the one that's got us into it. I want to stop here for a moment, and I want to share some thoughts with you that, that the Lord shared with me as I was thinking about that last statement. We know that there's been much talk over the last few years concerning the establishment of a one-world government. Several nations have joined in on that effort, and from time to time we get some tidbits of news about this progress toward that end. What happens inside of you whenever you hear uh, news about this endeavor? Anxiety? Uneasiness? Dread? Fear? All of the above? That's because we always associate the process with involving sinful, evil people. And that's enough to create fear in us, believe me. But I want to share something with you that I feel God gave to me concerning this topic of one world government. And you know me, I'm a weirdo. I don't see things like everybody else does, so just bear with me. I believe that God shared the thoughts that I want to share with you today because of what he told us at the beginning of this year, and that is that he is ushering in a time of awakening for his church. And we have seen some awakening beginning to happen around the world. But it's an awakening, a time of newness. God is ready for us to go forward in order that we might experience new things and not be looking to the events of the past. What if I were to tell you that we should not fear the idea of a one-world government? Why would I say that? Because what I believe we fail to realize is that the devil isn't attempting to set up a one-world government. He already has it set up in an operation. All the chaos, all the hatred, all the ugliness that has created the very things that we have spent time looking at earlier, the multitude of problems that plague our world, we experience these devastating events precisely because our world is already being governed by one force. Our world is being run by a one system form of government, and that is, of course, sin-driven and devil-controlled. It has been since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You don't have to be afraid of one world government. We've already got it, folks. That's why we're in the mess we're in now, because we've got a government, a spiritual government, that's controlling our world. It's a spiritual problem. It's not a physical problem. But what God would have us to understand is that it's time to switch the systems of government. It's time for us, the church of the living God, to begin establishing a new one-world government. The one-world government of God. What a novel idea. In the Garden of Eden, the devil managed to steal the power to govern our world away from mankind. From that point up to the event of the coming of Jesus, the devil has governed our world. When Jesus became successful at remaining sinless, when he faced off with the devil and his efforts to tempt him in the desert, and then finally at the showdown in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus won back the rights for the governing of our world. What had been lost in one garden had been reclaimed in another. 
I want us to look in Colossians. Chapter 2, verse number 15. You've got your Bibles. I want to read a verse to you here. I want to read in Colossians and also in Ephesians. Colossians 2.15. It says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's not the one I'm on. Well, that's in Ephesians, excuse me. Colossians 2.15. got to get the right book, folks. Okay, this is saying, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He has the power now. He has the power. He has the government, the right to govern. Ephesians 6.12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's telling us that there is a spiritual power base that is controlling our world. It's already a one world government set up. But now as the offspring of Jesus, we become included in the governing of our world. This world belongs to Jesus and his church, not the devil. We haven't understood that, I don't think. But we need to begin understanding that. As the church, we have been granted the right to assist Jesus in establishing how that world should be governed. You remember a while back we talked about this, that God has made us kings and priests unto him in our world. It's not that he will make us. He has already made us kings and priests unto him in our world. We've been commissioned by God to take our world back and bring it under the one world government of God. In the book of Isaiah chapter 11, And verses 6 through 10. And this is talking about what happens when Messiah comes. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lay down with the young goat, the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. That's talking about the kind of government that God wants to establish in our world. Who doesn't want that? We're talking about peace. Total peace. That's what God wants set up. When God had chosen the descendants of Abraham to become a nation of people unto himself, he was the one who established the form of government that would lead the nation. He would be the one who would govern. And that became the model that God has designed for governing our modern world. 
Daniel's vision and interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great image that was to represent the various kingdoms which are going to rise and in power and fall to the power of the next kingdom. And then that kingdom would be replaced by the next kingdom and so on. But when that final kingdom of men arose, it was to be replaced by a different kingdom. And this special kingdom represented was represented by a stone which came out of a mountain. What stone can you think of that was hewn out of a mountain? The Ten Commandments? Did not God cut that out of the mountainside with his own finger? The law. The law of God. This special kingdom represented by this stone, this law of God, fell upon all the kingdoms of the world prior to that, broke it apart, and then the stone became a great mountain until it filled the whole earth. That's the intent and purpose of God. It's to fill the whole world with the law of God. With the law of God. The stone was representing the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was the Word or the law of God made flesh. And it was his government that would replace all of those other forms of government at the hands of men that had ruled the world. What have we said was that supreme law of God? What is the supreme law of God? Four-letter word, L-O-V-E. You get that, and every problem goes away. Our world is dying for lack of love. You bring love back into the picture, that kingdom of God on earth, and all the problems go away. We're going to talk about that some more next time. I want us to pray today in closing. That we don't have to worry about what's going on in our world today, folks. If we can just be who we're supposed to be. If we can show the world God's love. And infect them with it. God can change it all and turn it all around. Because this world does belong to him. And we need to help him reclaim it. Let's pray.